You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Speak Podcast. I'm your host for today, George Andriopoulos, the architect and one of the co-leaders here at Speak. We have an incredible episode for you today, and the micro theme of today's episode is our cultures. You know, a lot of our pop-up events and a lot of our talks touch on culture in so many different ways. So we're going to be looking at three in particular today. One comes from Speak Heritage, which of course, produced by Dana Lopez, contained 10 talks that really delved into heritage and culture. We're also looking at Speak Homecoming, and we're looking at Speak Transformation in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So without any further ado, let's just dive right into this episode. Introducing our first talk today is Dana Lopez, the producer of Speak Heritage from July 2023 from Levittown, New York. It is really a pleasure to introduce the next speaker, Chris Min. Chris was a speaker for Speak Heritage, the pop-up event from July 27, 2023 in Levittown, New York at Governor's Comedy Club. Chris is such an interesting person, and I think that everyone agreed that we learned something new from Chris every time he spoke. Uh, In this case, he wanted to speak a little bit about his Korean heritage, and something I didn't know was in the title of his talk, but I'll let him explain it to you. His talk is entitled Koreans, the Irish of the East. Take it away, Chris. So I'm so happy that we got the definition of our theme tonight from the Heritage Council of Ireland because many of you may not know, but um, Koreans have been called the Irish of the East for a long time. Uh, The Wall Street Journal once asked an Irish ambassador, what's that about? And he explained, well, when you think about it, they're both small countries that really fiercely held on to their traditions over centuries, despite having powerful neighbors and being buffeted by them. England for Ireland, Japan for Korea. But for me, I like to think about the fact that Irish people and Koreans like to socialize by going to pubs to drink, that they get into fights really easily, but then they forgive pretty quickly. And they're also very quick to laugh as well as to cry. Now, I was born in Houston, Texas in 1967 to immigrant parents who came to the US without even the money for their airfare. But they did come with education that would lead to a more prosperous future. My dad was a doctor in Korea, so he was a foreign medical graduate, or FMG. And um, when I was in college, I happened to take a course on the history of medicine. And it turned out that 
as part of that course, we talked about the history of how FMGs were treated in this country, and in, for a long time, they were prevented from getting licenses to practice medicine here. That all changed in the 19, late 1950s in the era of specialization. What happened was there was a big concern that with all these specialists, there wouldn't be enough general practitioners to take care of patients. And there was even a committee that predicted within a few years we'd run out of doctors unless we allowed FNGs to become doctors. So my dad directly benefited from that policy. And I remember as a teenager looking at this board in Mercy Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, they had pictures of all the staff. And you can imagine the older doctors were all uniformly white. But as you got to the age of middle age, what, where my dad was, all of a sudden there was all this diversity, like delegates to the United Nations or something. So anyway, growing up in Houston, Texas, today I think we all think of it as a fairly cosmopolitan city, but it was actually pretty different in the 60s and 70s. And I remember suffering through a number of racial humiliations. I was called yellow. And that's actually the word that's on my Texas birth certificate for race or color. Um, the, I was, you know, got all these taunts, Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, all those kinds of things. And then just as Houston was getting more diverse, my family moved to Iowa, an even more homogeneous place. So by the time I went to college, I actually assumed my wife was going to be white. And it wasn't like this burning desire to have a white woman as my wife. It was just, it was hard to imagine being married to someone other than the 99% of people who surrounded me. My parents didn't even bother saying, why don't you find a nice Korean girl? And yet, <laughs> I ended up getting married to a Korean American, and get this, from South Dakota. <laughs> so. Now we have twin girls and we live in New York City and we had to make some choices. You know, they, we actually had the option of language school, you know, Korean language school, which wasn't an option for my parents when I was growing up in Houston. But we decided not to do that. But we had to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to be a second generation Korean? And like a lot of minorities, we instilled our shared values in our children. Uh, we spent time with both sets of grandparents, even though they were very far away. I'm not great with Korean language, but we learned how to cook Korean food at home, and we also ate out a lot in K-Town. And then we also instilled um, some values that come from Confucianism. You know, th this kind of um, respect for the elderly, the uh, respect for harmony and modesty. And we would always emphasize you know, not being impressed by show-offs and trying to be humble in your occasional achievements. But that brought me to schooling. And I have to say, there was, um, there's a relatively famous woman, Amy Chua, a Chinese-American, who wrote about being a tiger mom, which I found to be a little bit offensive, personally, because it seemed to promote this racist trope of the model Asian minority all for her financial gain. But that being said, I think every Asian recognizes that kind of parenting. And I would say my own parents um, probably did a milder form of it. And they certainly emphasize like becoming a doctor and getting good grades. So when we were raising our kids, it was kind of like, well, what are we going to do? And one of the things I wanted to avoid was that whole perpetuation. So we didn't emphasize becoming a doctor or lawyer. 
We didn't emphasize getting good grades. However, we would just kind of try to support them. We told them, just do your best. But then they recently both got into Harvard. And I asked them, okay, well, what was it like growing up in our family? And they said, oh my God, it was so much pressure. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? I didn't even know what courses you were taking. I didn't ever check your homework. You don't understand pressure you know, like I had. And uh, they were like, yeah, you just said to do our best. But we knew that really meant get straight A's. <laughs> so I told my friends I surpassed Amy Chua and her heavy-handed tactics where she's like sitting on her kids' shoulders, checking what they're doing. I get to do my own thing, but my kids act like I'm on top of them. So I've come to call that ninja parenting. <laughs> so then, you know, what does all this mean about me? You know, after all, I did become a doctor, but the fact is, it doesn't, didn't quite follow my parents' program. Uh, lately, I've become more and more entrepreneurial. I work in biotech, and in the last five years, I've had five different jobs at five different companies. Not the stable career that my parents were envisioning. And then worse yet, I do extracurriculars like this. Um, I'm a performing violinist. I recently debuted at Carnegie Hall. I play in a chamber orchestra. I do stand-up comedy. I've been doing that for about a year. I, I perform at the comic strip in Manhattan. And uh, I took up singing during the pandemic and now hang out singing in Brandy's piano bar with a bunch of Broadway singers. Not anything that my parents would have condoned. But I do think that I've been able to build on the foundation of my culture and expand it to other possibilities. Increasingly, when I am working in these companies, for the time that I am, uh, I'm in leadership positions. And one of my good friends is an executive coach and has observed me in various circumstances and tells me that I practice a form of leadership called empathetic leadership, which she says is the hardest kind of, of leadership to, uh, to do, but it also leads to the highest performing teams. Uh, I, I like to think that comes from my Confucianism and one of the things that people who work for me say is that while, we, while you, we think you're a nice guy, it's also very clear the very high standards you keep and the high expectations you have of us. So I kind of feel like that's, again, my ninja parenting. <laughs> so anyway, um, I also think my love of music comes from my culture. And you know, I, I'll never forget that I went to Korea many years ago shortly after being married got introduced to my wife's extended family. We had this huge dinner, maybe 30 people around the table. And I was shocked because all of a sudden at the end of the dinner, one of the elder members of the family started pointing to people one by one and made them stand up and sing a song, just like maybe the Irish would do. So on that note, I wish you all a good night. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your experiences. And like I said, I think everyone learns something from Chris every time he gets up to speak. So thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Dana. Up next, we have an incredible talk from our Speak Homecoming event from March of 2023 in Carrollton, Texas. I'll introduce the producer of Speak Homecoming, Cheryl West Luong. Our next published speaker is Alejandra L. Valenzuela. 
Alejandra came to speak homecoming a little later in the process as our final speaker. From the moment she joined the lineup, she brought so much life and energy that continued through to the day of the show. We're talking about someone who, with her selfie stick, recorded every first the cast had from first moment in the dressing room to first moment each person met the other people to a million hugs and a brilliant smile that not only brought joy to our lineup itself, but brought ease to our audience as well when she came with a talk about La Llorona, a figure in folklore typically seen as disturbing at best. Yet her choice to flip this archetype to tell her own story of personal development and spiritual awakening is no less brilliant than that smile. From Speak Homecoming, recorded on March 30th, 2023 at the K Plaza Art Center in Carrollton, Texas, here is Alejandra L. Valenzuela with The Day I Met La Llorona. Do you hear that wind? It's La Llorona! Hurry up and get inside before she sees you. Chills would run down our spines. I'd glance over at my brother or one of my cousins, wondering if we dared call their bluff. We knew they wanted us inside, but we weren't done playing. One of us would inevitably reply, it's not La Llorona, it's just the wind. And my mother, without missing a beat, would say, no, I see her. She's walking on the telephone wires and looking for her children. Can you hear her? Donde están mis hijos? Where are my children? It would utterly freak us out, especially if it was at dusk. Fear would overcome us and we run into the house to peer through the windows and look for her. These are my childhood memories in the high desert of San Bernardino County, California, the home of my maternal grandparents. La Llorona, the weeping woman, always seemed more alive up there. There are many versions of her tale. The most common is the story of a jilted woman who kills her two children at the river, and her spirit is plagued to roam the depths of the riverbed, searching for the souls of her lost children. Salías de un templo un día, llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. You were leaving the temple one day, llorona, when I saw you passing by. Hermoso y fiel llevabas, llorona, que la virgen te creí. You wore a beautiful woven tunic, llorona that I thought you were the Virgin Mother. Never in my life did I actually believe I'd have an encounter with La Llorona, but it was destined that one day I would feel her call. You see, I had gone without love in my life for more than a decade. At the age of 28, I broke up with the fourth man I had ever loved. I thought he was the one. I remember the moment when I allowed myself to believe it. And then it ended, and I could not believe I was wrong. My heart stayed energetically entangled with him for another five years. And when that final chord broke off, I was determined to believe in love again. 
but all I could feel was blocked. Ay de mí, llorona, 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 de un campo lirio. Oh, my llorona, 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 from a field of lilies. El que no sabe de amores, llorona, no sabe lo que es martirio. One who does not know of love, llorona, does not know of martyrdom. I had suffered long enough. I had played full out and failed. Who did I have to become to be worthy of love? I changed my entire image, searching for the winning combination I thought I needed to attract a man into my life. I became the executive director of a nonprofit that supported girls to be the first in their families to receive a college education. I lived in a beachfront home, drove a Mercedes, worked in a fancy high-rise building, wore designer outfits, took a lot of pictures with change makers and thought leaders from around the world. I was now 38 years old and nothing, no love, just event after event, only to go home and wonder, what was I doing wrong? Why had a man not entered my life? No sé que tienen las flores, llorona las flores de un campo santo. I don't know what the flowers have, Llorona, the flowers of a holy field. Que cuando las mueve el viento, Llorona, parecen que están llorando. That when the wind moves them, Llorona, they seem to be crying. Desperate for a cure, I flew to Brazil a week before my 39th birthday. I was gonna meet a famous healer and ask him to unblock my heart. But La Llorona had other plans for me. The healer wouldn't work with me. <laughs> I was denied a session, seriously. So I was left to search for something else. That is when I met La Llorona. She disguised herself in a cup of what looked like brown, muddied river water. I was told it was medicine. And when my tongue touched it for the first time, my soul instantly recognized its bitter flavor. A part of me inside died that night in her arms. And when I came to, her teachings were already taking root in my consciousness. Alejandra, mi querida, my dear, all of your efforts to find love have been in vain because they did not truly come from your heart. This job, your home, your clothes, your titles, all of this came from your ego. There is so much more waiting for you in life that has yet to be seen. And then she was gone. I flew home from that trip and the house of cards I had so carefully constructed collapsed. I could no longer live the life I was leaving. I needed to find her again. I needed to be with her. Ay de mí, llorona, 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 llévame al río. Oh, my llorona, 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 take me to the river. Within two months, I had left everything I had ever known, quit my job, sold my things, scared the bejesus out of all my friends and family, 
and bought a one-way ticket back to Brazil. I met with La Llorona at the river again and again. I would follow her lead, extending my hands deep into the current for the parts of me I had abandoned, searching for my inner child. It was so difficult to find her. At times, the pain would consume me. I'd get a glimpse, and then she'd be lost again. My inner child didn't trust me. Tápame con tu rebozo, llorona, porque me muero de frío. Cover me with your shawl, Yorona, because I am freezing to death. The more I walked with La Llorona along the river, the more I began to reconnect to these missing parts of me. She showed me how to commune with nature and immerse myself in its rhythm. I studied the spirit medicine of the animals. I began to pay attention to the stars in the sky. It took two years of combing the riverbed before I finally reunited with my little girl. I freed her from the monsters that had trapped her deep in the waters of purgatory and nursed her back to health. I promised I would never leave her side again. I told her that she was the love of my life. And I was so sorry. I didn't understand this before. I vowed we would now live life together and wanted to know what kind of things she wanted to do. Dos besos llevo en el alma llorona que no se apartan de mí. I carry two kisses in my soul, llorona, that do not depart from me. El último de mi madre, llorona, y el primero que te di. The last one from my mother, Yorona, and the first one I gave you. My little girl loves to tell stories. She loves to make blessed rosaries and give thanks every single day to La Virgen de Guadalupe. My little girl kisses trees and takes cold ocean plunges because it makes her feel alive. She sings with the mermaids to the moon and dances to the rhythm of the cosmos. La Llorona, once a terrifying figure of my childhood, now a compañera del alma, a soulmate. I often meet with her by the river and continue to learn from her teachings. It makes me laugh and cry to realize that whether as a kid or now as an adult, her presence continues to bring me home. That was Alejandra L. Valenzuela with The Day I Met La Llorona. Alejandra's talk was so mesmerizing. I remember sitting in the front row of that audience with some family members that I brought with me to the event in Texas. And 
It was incredible to hear the response of my family members as she mixed storytelling, she mixed song, and she mixed so many other different cultural elements into this talk to really engage the audience. So thank you, Alejandra, for an incredible talk. And thank you, Cheryl, for producing an incredible event, as always. Our final talk for today comes from across the pond from Speak Transformation on October 5th, 2023 in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Recorded at the Belfast Empire Music Hall, Dave Thompson gave an incredibly insightful talk, which so deeply relates to our micro theme of our culture. Stemming from his experience of starting out in teaching in the 1990s, Dave Thompson's talk looks at how educational settings can be valuable places for discussion of different perspectives. It also raises the question of where those places to meet, talk, and hear other perspectives are in society. Without any further ado, here's Dave Thompson with Can We Talk About This? In 1993, in Northern Ireland, 88 people lost their lives as a direct result of the Troubles. It was a similar total to the year before, a similar total again to the year before that. Sadly, one of the events of that year that stands out most uh, occurred in October. It was the bomb on the Shankill Road. It took place during a busy Saturday afternoon um, and 10 people lost their lives just on that one occasion. A few weeks earlier, the grand old age of 19, I started teacher training college in Belfast. It was a four-year course, and every year you were sent out to a local school uh, for a few, a few day visits, and then a block practice, a fairly intense period of, of teaching practice that really put to the test whether life in the classroom was for you or not. And over that time, I got to work with a number of really gifted, talented teachers who were committed to what they were doing, had great relationships in the room, and maybe most importantly, had the patience to train me. But aside from those relationships, I want to say a little bit about the context of those four schools in the mid-1990s. The first school that I was sent out to, this is the year I'm 19 coming 20, that school was on the Shankill Road. It was within walking distance of the Shankill Road bomb. It wasn't the only event that happened during my time there. On a day visit, uh, 24, 48 hours before one of those visits, a woman's body had been abandoned just outside the playground in the early hours of the morning. During my block practice itself, one of the boys in my class, his stepfather was shot and killed in the city centre. There was a, a feud going on at the time, which sadly was not uncommon. And the school had a very clear policy, which was we don't talk about any of this. Whatever is happening outside these walls, it does not come into the classroom. In my second year, I was at a school slightly further out of, of Belfast. Things had changed. This is 94, 95. There was a, a ceasefire, an embryonic peace process. I suppose you could argue hardly a peace process at all, but things were changing. But nothing had changed near the school. The, the gable ends um, still carried murals of masked men with guns and messages of war. Now, I may have missed it, 
But it seemed to me that none of what was changing, no matter how slowly, and none of what was around the school was ever discussed in school. And the same thing happened again in my fourth year. The school that I sent to was a great place to be, but was also at what we would consider an interface. The, the end of one political, cultural allegiance ran out before another one began. So the school was, was quite close to that point. And again, none of what was being discussed in the media, uh, none of the local context ever seemed to make it into conversation in the classroom. Maybe something happened when I wasn't there. I was only there a fairly short period of time. But it seemed to me that what was happening in society just wasn't reflected inside school. The closest we ever came to discussing that was on a school trip when two of the boys at the back of the school bus began singing a sectarian song and we didn't get far into it before the teacher shushed them. Now, I'm not suggesting that 9, 10, 11-year-olds should be unpicking the grisly news items um, you know, on a daily or weekly basis. But I do think there was some room for some discussion of what was happening. Maybe some kind of, of look at what creates conflict or what some of our conflict was about or just something around the various identities of people in Belfast at that time. Even just some acknowledgement of how desperately sad the whole thing was. The school that bucked that trend completely happened in my third year. It wasn't very old at that stage, maybe a little over a decade by the point that I went there on teaching practice. It was a school that had been formed by parents with the idea that no matter what political or cultural or religious background you were from, all children could be educated together. And it wasn't just about integration in terms of intake. It was also to do with integration in terms of practice. It wasn't just putting everybody of different backgrounds into a classroom together. It was about using that time to discuss what people had brought with them. I had an older class, primary seven, 10 coming 11. And their topic was India, mainly a geography topic, but because I was a history specialist, I wanted to crowbar in some history lessons. And so for a few lessons in my teaching practice, we looked at Gandhi, and can't really look at Gandhi without looking at discrimination and prejudice. And I remember the conversation that I first had with that teacher and saying, if, if we begin to talk about discrimination and prejudice in an Indian context, what if the conversation moves to a more modern, you know, Belfast context? Can we talk about it? Is that all right? Can we talk about that? And of course the answer is yes. That's what we're here to do. And there was something refreshingly wonderful happening. I don't know if the lesson was particularly outstanding. I'm sure it wasn't. But for the first time, it seemed to me that what was happening in society was able to connect with what was happening in the classroom. Kind of spoiled me a bit because by the time I had finished my training in 1997, I'd lived through a bit of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I'd had enough of the troubles. 
I wanted to see an end to, to the bombing and the shooting. And, and even though we were moving away from that, I had hopes for more than the, the suspicion and fear and distrust in society. And I could see that I wanted to be part of something different. And I wanted my work and our education system to be part of that possibility too. Thankfully, the school that I had been at in my third year came calling just after I qualified and they offered me a short-term contract which got extended and got extended and I stayed there for 20 years, long story short. I'm six years out now, just over. This is my seventh academic year after moving away to, to many and varied other things. And I think there are two things sitting with me. The first is about the transformation that I saw take place. Teaching that way transformed me. I went in as a rookie teacher in my early 20s, thinking I had a fairly good handle on what was, what was in the room and the different perspectives, and then spent two decades learning that there was quite a lot I didn't know I didn't know. I think it was a transformative experience for the students as they got to bring their own background and culture with them and then explore some of that in the classroom. I think it was transformative um, for other members of staff and parents and, and for the school community more broadly. And I think in that time too, the education system transformed. Ways of, of looking at perspective taking and difference and diversity that people wanted to avoid, like the plague 30 years ago, have now become mainstream. Now, there's some research to say we could definitely be doing that better. It is far from perfect. But those ideas are now embedded in the curriculum in a way that they certainly weren't in the 1990s. But the question that I was struggling with back then sits with me still, and that question is, well, can we talk about this? There are things that divide us. What do we do with that? When and where do we talk about those? And how are we going to be with each other when we talk about them? Northern Ireland has moved on. Let's be positive for a moment. We are in a much better place than we were 25 years ago. But a quarter century after the Good Friday Agreement, I admit to a little disappointment that we haven't moved farther and faster. We're better, but there is still division. And division within our society translates into division within government. And we've had stop-start government for, for 25 years. That's been fairly ineffective overall. Before we jump on our politicians, however, I think it's important to recognise that they don't get beamed in from somewhere else. They come from us. And we disagree about so many things, so many topics. It's not just about where the border is. It's about Brexit and immigration and access to abortion and our education system and global warming and how to handle a pandemic. And on it goes. We tend to pick a side and then not listen so much to anybody else who, who landed somewhere different. It'd be really good ending to this talk if I had an answer to it, and I don't. I'm not sure what is needed. I'm not proposing some kind of 
local community forum where we all turn up every third Thursday with a story to share. Although sometimes those things can be helpful. But I do think it's this. I do think there's something in our way of life that needs to change. Earlier this year, I listened to a friend of mine reflect on his experience of the Shankill Road bomb. He'd never talked about it in public before, and I didn't realize that he'd been working in the area at the time. I definitely didn't realize that he had been driving along the road at that point when the bomb went off, and he was one of the first responders on the scene. And reflecting 30 years on about the trauma of that event, both on him and on the local community, my friend said this, peace, if it comes at all, comes one conversation at a time, one event at a time, one relationship at a time. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that we have a responsibility to ourselves and a responsibility to the generations that come after us. Not just to take opportunities to discuss the difficult, divisive issues, but to be a little bit more intentional and to be more creative, to create those spaces, to discuss the things that have the opportunity to divide us and to seize the opportunity to say, yes, we can talk about this. Thank you. That was Dave Thompson with Can We Talk About This? Dave was such an incredible speaker, so much fun to work with, and gave such an important message. For me, being one of the co-producers of Speak Transformation in Belfast, it was very important for me to understand the culture of Northern Ireland before working with the speakers, which stemmed from multiple conversations with co-producers Dr. Kristen Donnelly and Brittany Breslin. I think Dave did an incredible job of showcasing what it was like in Northern Ireland back in the 90s and throughout today and show the progression and growth of the country in so many different ways in the talk. So thank you, Dave, for an incredible talk. That does it for this week's episode of The Speak Podcast. Join us next week and every single week as we bring you more talks from more pop-up events and we keep amplifying voices from across the globe. We'll see you next time, guys. Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and Speak at Work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.